Good morning, Go Church. How's everybody doing today? It is good to be with you. I hope that you guys are excited and expectant for what God wants to do as we not only enter a new year, uh, but really enter into a new decade, you know, like it's a big deal. And so I'm believing that God wants to do something special in and through you. And even bigger than that, I would say is I know God is going to do something special in and through the life of this church, amen? I, um, you know, I say that because a few things. The biggest part of that equation is, I mean, let's just, let's just call it what it is. Like with God, we know that God is faithful, he's good. We see that he's blessing this place, that he's doing incredible things in the lives of the people that have been planted here. They're flourishing. We see that and we're excited about everything that he's done, but Despite the fact that God is by far the biggest part of the equation, I do have to also give honor where honor is due and recognize the fact that it takes special leadership to be able to steward what God gives them to make something like what's happening here at Go Church happen. And so can we just give it up for Pastors JC and Kimberly Worley really quickly? I, um, you know, I told... I told JC I wouldn't cry, but I can't tell you how difficult it is to look him in the face and just say, uh, just from the bottom of Lindsay and I's hearts, how thankful we are for you guys. We've been in some dark places. You've pulled me out of them. I'm sure that was difficult, but here I am, thank God. Uh, and just, just the way that you lead, the way that you love, the way that you are is just an incredible communicator, leader, but also just people, parents. It's incredible to be a part of a church where you have that kind of leadership. And on top of that, you're just swaggy, man. Like you just look clean. Uh, like Lindsay and I, like I hate, I would never tell you how long it took me to like pick an outfit last night. I was like, JC always looks like so good, you know? And she, she was like, there's nothing you can do. You're not going to look as good as him. Just go all black, you know? Like she was, she was like, at least it's slimming, honey. I was like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. But, um, you know, I, uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here. But uh, what I'm most excited about is that we've come and we've gathered here. And we haven't gathered for just any reason, but we've come to gather under the name of Jesus. And when we gather under that name, see, I, I believe that Jesus is in the place with us where two or more are gathered. There's more than two here last time I checked. And here's the thing. Uh, Jesus, when he's in this place, he's, he's not here to listen to the message. He is the message. Uh, he's not here to be a part of what we are doing, but he is the point of everything that we are doing. And so I don't expect us to come in here one way and leave the same way when we've come to worship his name through the singing of our praises and by the gathering to open up his word. And I am excited about what God wants to do in and through you guys this year. And so with that being said, are you guys ready for the word of God? If you would flip or scroll with me to the book of Matthew, that's where we're going to be today. As you're flipping there, I'm going to drink this water. We're going to be in the 13th verse of the third chapter. I want to read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 together this morning. And 
What we're about to read is this incredibly important moment in the life of Jesus. He's about to be baptized by his cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist. And I don't know about you guys, maybe I'm the only honest one here, but there are a few stories in the scriptures where I just kind of easily scoot past them like they're not miracles. Uh, like they're not incredible, mind-blowing. And, and Matthew 3 and, and the moment of Jesus' baptism tends to be one of those because it's like I said in the last gathering, like even if you're on a new Bible reading plan, uh, you did not put in any effort if you didn't get through Matthew 3, okay? It is the first gospel and it is the third chapter in that gospel. Like we typically get through it and brush past it because like it just feels like it had to happen, right? Jesus had to be baptized in order for us to get to all the rest of the gospels. But this is an incredible moment in the life of Jesus and it means infinitely more to us than I think we even realize sometimes. So I wanna read it and talk about it together, but this is what Matthew 3 verse 13 has to say. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Will you guys pray with me really quickly? Well, Lord, God, we love you. And we just thank you for everything that you've done in years past. But God, we're ready to see you do a new thing. Uh, we're ready to see you make a way in the wilderness, streams in the desert, Lord. We're stepping into a new year, a new decade, but we have to let go of some old things in order to grab hold of everything that you want to do that's new. And God, I don't know what everyone steps into this place going through. I have no idea, but you do. God, you know where they were gonna sit. You know how many hairs are on their head. God, you know exactly what they're carrying with them that nobody knows despite the faces that we put on to make everything seem okay. God, you know the messes in their life that they feel labeled by. You know the messes in their life that they've tried to run from. God, you know what they're dealing with. And so, Lord, I can't do anything other than say the words that you've given to me. And so, Lord, I just pray right now uh, that you would use these words and anoint them with your Holy Spirit, God. Otherwise, they're just words. And God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the 16th century was kind of the time to be alive if you wanted to be a famous artist in history because it was during that Renaissance period of history that we had dudes like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci creating works of art like the Statue of David, the Sistine Chapel, the Mona Lisa, and the painting of the Last Supper. But in the shuffle of all of these famous artists, I doubt that many of us have heard of a guy named Raffaello Sanzio da Urbino, who we're just gonna call Raphael for obvious reasons. I'm not saying that name the rest of this time. But Raphael, he, he was one of those guys that would really be revered if he hadn't died early on in life. In fact, one article that I read had this to say about him. Raphael was the supreme Renaissance painter 
more versatile than Michelangelo, and more prolific than their older contemporary Leonardo. High praise for a guy that most of us have never heard of, but all that to say, this dude was an extremely gifted artist. Well, fast forward with me to the 19th century. Former British Prime Minister George Hamilton Gordon saw a painting of the Virgin Mary that he believed to be an original work of Raphael. So he buys this thing thinking, yes, I have an original work from a master artist, but unfortunately for him, shortly after he purchased it, it was inspected and immediately downgraded to being nothing more than a really solid copy of one of Raphael's original works. And so as time went on, there seemed to be nothing special about this painting, right? Like it's not, it's not something that belonged to anyone. It's just a knockoff. And so in 1899, it was sold for just 25 bucks. Well, fast forward one more time with me to the much more recent past. In 2016, an art historian comes across this painting and he's like, you know, I know this is dated to around the time of Raphael. And if this is a copy, this is like the most legit copy I've ever seen in my life. And so he had it taken down and inspected. And after they inspected it, it was concluded that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this was not a copy, but this was an original work of art done by Raphael himself. And what once passed through the hands and opinions of so many people and was sold for just 25 bucks, it can now hang up in your home for just $26 million. And I tell you that because especially as we're walking into a new year, many of us, we look at the canvas of our life and we don't like what we see. Uh, Many of us, we used to see a blank canvas that was full of potential, and now all we see is this irredeemable mess, and like the painting, we feel like we've passed through the hands and the opinions of so many people that we're actually starting to struggle to see the truth, and we're starting to believe the lie that maybe God doesn't care about this mess that I'm in. Uh, Maybe he doesn't care about the mess that I feel like I've become. Uh, Some of us feel like we have literally passed through the hands of people. You feel used by people that you once trusted. Uh, You thought people wanted to be friends with you for who you are, but you found out they wanted to just get acquainted with you for what you do and what you got. Uh, Maybe some of you, you're in here and sexually you've given yourself up in relationships many times because you thought, well, when things get rough in this relationship, I'm just gonna give all of myself to this person who's not given all of themselves to me in a commitment and you think that's gonna keep the relationship working, but it didn't. And so now you're wondering, is the spouse ever gonna love me? Because I feel like I'm becoming a mess because of all these circumstances I find myself in. Maybe some of you in the room, you're, you're older or you're, you're chronologically superior to the rest of us and, um, and you feel like, man, you know what? It's, it's crazy that we live in this society right now that feels like I got nothing to offer when I feel like I got plenty to offer. Like people just think wisdom is cheap these days. They think you can Google something you need a little gray hair for. Maybe some of us are in the room and we feel like an opinion has been put on us so many times we're starting to wonder if that thing is a fact. You thought your dad called maybe to just check up on you for once, but he just called you to let you know you're still doing things wrong and you should be doing them a different way. Maybe your mom called you and you thought she wanted to get dinner just to get dinner and talk, but she really is checking in to see if you're still on track to becoming who she never became, but you don't feel like you're supposed to be who she wants you to be. You feel like God has called you to become your own person and who he's called you to be. Maybe some of you, you're in here 
and you've gone to your boss like five times with that idea that you feel like God dropped in your heart for a business and for the fifth time he told you your idea is trash and you feel like you should be stepping out in faith and starting that business but really he's told you so many times it's a bad idea that you're starting to wonder if that thing is a fact and here's really where a lot of people are going to land. Some of you, you don't need anyone else to put an opinion on you because there's not a person in the world that's harder on you than you are on you. So, some of us, you know, we think about all the things that we've gone through, all the things that we've experienced in our life, and we just feel like our life is never going to be anything more than the mess that it is. We had hoped and prayed that it would be something else, but it's just not moving in the direction that we saw things going. But I'm here to remind somebody this morning that that Raphael painting passed through the hands and the opinions of so many people because nobody was able to recognize the value of what they held in their hands. No person who had it or place that it had been was able to take away from the fact that it belonged to and was handcrafted by a master artist. The messiness of its history did not determine its value. Its maker determined its value and it was worth infinitely more than the $25 that it sold for because of whose it was and who created it. But because of some messy circumstances in our lives, that have shaped the way that we think of and view ourselves and the way that we think of and view God, we're selling our lives short on something that God paid everything for on the cross. See, I just have come to the realization that the more secure we are in what our heavenly father thinks of us, the less likely we are to label ourselves by the messes we found ourselves in or try to run away from the messiness of our lives. In Matthew chapter three, we read about Jesus' baptism. And in those first few verses, we see just how much Jesus cares about the messiness of our lives. Look at verses 13 through 15 again with me. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So Jesus comes to John on his own to be baptized, but John sees Jesus coming and he's like, wait a minute, wait, like how sway? Like what, what, what are you, you're not supposed to be here, God. I need to fill you in, God, on a few things. I don't know if you realize what I'm doing here, but I'm actually baptizing repentant sinners and you are like the furthest thing from a sinner. So if anything needs to be going on here today, you need to be baptizing me. And Jesus is like, I know, but for right now, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Some of us know what that's like. We're like, God, God. And he's like, I know, but do this thing. Jesus is saying here, it is important for him to identify with the messiness of sinners now so sinners can identify by his righteousness later. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin on the cross who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Jesus is saying, I'm taking the messiness of your life. I'm taking this sinful identity to the cross. I'm going to get it crucified. And then all who believe in me will rise to new life in me when I step out of the tomb over sin and over death. Jesus cares about the messiness of your life. He cares so much so that he cares about your mess enough to step into it before you ever called on him and say, I'll take it on. I'll take on every sin, mess, and broken part of your life and I'll make a way to God that you couldn't make for yourself because he's the God of the unfair trade and it works out really well for you and for me. A few years ago, I read about this Japanese art called kintsugi and I wasn't just looking up Japanese art, I kind of stumbled across it. I'm not trying to sound smarter than I actually am but I I was reading this article that I stumbled across uh, about this art called kintsugi. We might have a photo of it, I think. And kintsugi is this art that repairs broken ceramics or pottery with a lacquer that's been mixed with gold, silver, or platinum. And the idea behind it is that rather than hiding the damage that has been done to the piece, you actually magnify the beauty of the repairs that restored it. So the repairs actually make the piece more beautiful and valuable than it was prior to being broken. When you break something, rather than seeing a bunch of broken pieces and being like, eh, that thing ain't worth nothing and throwing it away, you look at it and say, what's about to come out of this is better than what it was before. You pick up each fragment and you put it back together and seal it together and you don't even say, look, it's as good as new, which is what a lot of us wanna do. We're like, man, I wish that thing was good as new. No, it's better than that. You pick up each fragment, carefully put it back into its place, seal it with this beautiful expensive lacquer and say, there it is, more beautiful than it's ever been before. I'm here to tell somebody this morning that no matter how messy our lives are, no matter how bad that person hurt you, what has been said about you, Jesus Christ came down to this earth, picked up your pieces and sealed you back together with the lacquer of his blood and you are made beautiful by the blood of Jesus that he willingly poured out on the cross. See, you aren't made of the messes in your life, you're made in them. Uh, You are not defined by the messiest moments that you have found yourself in, but you're actually being refined in those messy moments. God loves to work in the soil of suffering. God loves to use messes to do some of his most beautiful work. But even as I say that, I know that many of us still have been around people and maybe even churches that have made us feel like, you know what, God, God saves me for the glory of his name. He will save me so that his name can be renowned. He might even love me sometimes, but I just honestly, I don't feel like God loves me as I'm struggling through this mess. I don't feel like God likes me because of all the things that I've done and where I'm at. But here's the reality. You look at verses 16 and 17 that we read earlier. And the order of events here is extremely important because you gotta realize what we read in Matthew 3, like, Nothing incredible has happened in the ministry of Jesus to this point as we know it. In Matthew chapter three, Jesus has not performed any insane miracles yet. He has not walked on water. He has not healed the blind, the lame, the deaf, the sick, even the dead. He hasn't hasn't done any of those things. He hasn't preached the most famous sermon in history. He has not even been tempted by Satan yet. But look at what happens. It says in verse 16 and 17, 
When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, the father's voice, my father's voice and your father's voice said to him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do do you catch the significance of that moment? That before Jesus does anything, God calls him beloved Do you want to know what God thinks of you as you step into a new year and a new decade? If you have repented of your sins, the past, present, and future, and believe in Jesus as the son of God, then your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven, and you are new in Jesus Christ. And God is pleased with you, not because of anything that you or I have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done, and that's good news. But even though, even though a lot of us hear that with our head, if I gave you a pop quiz before we stepped in here today and say, hey, do you think you're made new by the blood of Jesus? Do you think that the blood of Jesus covers your life? Everybody would circle true, but their heart would believe false. A lot of us, we know that with our head, but we don't believe it with our heart. But can I, can I put this question in front of you today as you start a new year? How different would your life be if instead of waking up every day and thinking about how you have to perform in the duties that you have to go through each day, you did something different? Instead of waking up and calling upon the anxieties of your day and saying, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm gonna perform as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as, as a son, daughter, I don't know how I'm gonna do as a student, an employer, an employee. Like I, Instead of that, You woke up and you sat on the edge of your bed each morning and you said, it doesn't matter how I perform today or how today goes, God is pleased with me because I am in Christ Jesus. But here's the reality. A lot of us, even though that's something that we feel like, yeah, I could, I could do that and, and like that's something that maybe I could keep with me for the first like maybe 45 seconds of my day. We live in a very performance-based society and culture, don't we? And so a lot of us, we feel like I'm, I'm in a lot of trouble if my mess starts to get in the way of some things that I got to perform throughout the day. Like if my mess gets in the way, I'm only as good as what I've done for people lately. That's the culture and society that we live in. What have you done for me lately? But I'm here to tell somebody that the messiness of your life, it matters to God. God's character is unshakable and his character is unconditional love towards his people. What God thinks of you is covenantal. It is not conditional. There is no mess in your life that God looks at and goes, sweet mercy, again? Again? He promised me like four hours ago he wouldn't do that and here we are, that's it, no blood for him. Like, he doesn't do that. There is no mess in your life that has left a stain so deep that the blood of Jesus could not reach it and clean it up. Now that doesn't mean that we just get to walk through this life carefree and that there are no consequences for any of our actions or sins and we get a get out of jail free card. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the enemy will use the messes in your life to try to distract you from what the blood of Jesus means over your life. The enemy will use your failures in an attempt to sabotage your faith. 
But the problem with that tactic is that God doesn't work around your failures. He works in them, through them, and he frees you from them. The last time that I checked, God didn't work around the cross. He hung on it. Jesus said, your will be done. And he willingly went to the cross, passionately endured the suffering that you and I deserved, and he victoriously stepped out of the tomb over sin and death. If you think your mess is too messy, if you think that you failed too often, If you think that you have done things that are too shameful or horrific to come to God, can I tell you something that's gonna hurt a little bit at first, but it's ultimately gonna help you heal? You don't have that kind of power. Your mess doesn't have that kind of power. Here's the reality. To say that your mess is too much is to say that the cross is too little and what God thinks of you is not contingent upon your ability to do things to the best of your ability. It is solidified through Christ's actions of doing things perfectly on the cross. The power of the cross is greater than the messiness of your life and the feelings that you feel. You simply can't outrun a love that knows no bounds. You can't outrun a love that knows no bounds. I have a favorite movie. Um, it's, it's probably, you know, this isn't even an opinion. I think it's just a certifiable fact that The Lion King is the greatest movie in history. <clears throat> we can clap for that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like, uh, if you haven't seen Lion King, uh, I got two things um, really quickly. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, do you have kids? <laughs> Don't deprive your kids of a great story, okay? Like, number two, um, if you haven't seen it, you about spoil parts of it, but you're only like 25 years too late. So it's still worth the watch. And also, you know, they're like re-releasing all these Disney movies, you know? I mean, like watch the original. The new one felt like was watching National Geographic. It was too much. But like, I digress here. Um, here's the thing. Do you remember in the movie? In the movie, there's this really, really climactic moment where in the middle of this stampede, Mufasa goes into the gorge to save his son from this stampede, and he does so successfully, but at the expense of his own life. And after the gorge is cleared out, the stampede has gone through, Simba goes back down into the gorge, and he sees his father's lifeless body there, and he goes up to his dad's body, and he's pressing on his dad, and he's like, get up, dad, get up, and his dad's not getting up, and so now Simba's crying, I'm crying, we're all crying, and it's just, it's a horrible moment. And Simba thinks that this mess is his fault. Now, we know it was really this evil setup by Uncle Scar, but Simba doesn't know that, and so Simba thinks it's his fault. Simba's over here like, what did I do? How did I get in this mess? This is my fault. And what happens to Simba in that moment is something that happens to many of us when we find ourselves in the messiest moment of our lives. An enemy swoops into the gorge with you, gets right up next to you and whispers into your ear, Simba, this is bad. What did you do? What are your friends gonna think? What is your mom gonna think? And Simba starts panicking like we do, and he's like, I don't, what, what do I do? I, don't, I, I, didn't, I didn't want this to happen. I didn't mean for this to happen. And the enemy says to him, run away, Simba. Run away and never return. And so Simba runs away. And things look good for a little bit. Like he ends up in paradise with his boys, Timon and Pumbaa, Hakuna Matata, that whole situation. And they're doing their thing and everything looks dope for a second. And it's like all good. But deep down, Simba knows that he's not walking in his calling. He knows that he's not fulfilling his purpose. And he knows that he should be despite the messiness of his past. But he can't shake this whole situation. And it's not until that old wise sage Rafiki, that chronologically superior voice that these young people need in their lives, 
life literally smacks a little sense into Simba and says, hey, your father's alive. And Simba's like, no, he's not. And Rafiki says, yes, he is. Come and follow me. I'll show him to you. And so Simba follows Rafiki to a pool of water. And Rafiki says, look down there. And Simba looks into the pool of water and he's like, yeah, it's just, it's just my reflection. And Rafiki says, no, look harder. <laughs> and Simba looks into the pool of water and he looks more intently and he sees bubbling with in his own reflection is his father's reflection and what Rafiki says to Simba is something that I'm trying to say to you this morning. You see, he lives in you. I'm here to tell somebody this morning, it doesn't matter what has happened in your past. An enemy swooped in and tried to tell you that something, that your mess was too much, but you need someone to come into your life and say to you that your father who lives on the inside of you is greater than anything that has happened behind you, that the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, it's greater than anything, any mess that you found yourself in, and there's no need to run away from the messiness of your life because God has a plan and a purpose to use anything that you've been through for your good and for his glory. And to be quite honest with you, that's why I love the story of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, it's probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever tells. And, you know, it's, it's for those of you who don't know, I'll, I'll give a little synopsis, but Jesus gives this incredible story, this, this parable, and it's a story about a son who comes to his father and asks for his portion of the inheritance. Some of you live with someone like that. You feel like your children are asking for part of your inheritance currently. Um, but he comes and he says, hey, um, dad, I, I really need your cash. Uh, here's the reality. You're not dying fast enough. And I just feel like, um, I realize you're trying to be like a good steward. That's cool. Uh, but I have plans for me. And so I'll take my half, right? Like I, I value the money more than I value your life. I know that you want to do things with whatever it is that you want to do, but I'll take your dough right now. And it's, it's something that on the front end, you kind of can't believe it. The father's like, okay, and he gives him that portion of the money and the son goes and squanders it. He doesn't end up having a place to live at the end of everything. He doesn't end up having any food to eat. He has nothing that he can show for all of this money that he once had. And it's funny, before we jump into it, I was talking to somebody and it was somebody, I, I cannot stand when someone like asks me what I do for a living like on airplanes because it's like, uh, this could go one of two ways. Uh, but I'll tell them and then they end up bringing up some Bible story and inevitably the prodigal son is like one of four parables that everybody like at least knows regardless of where you've been in your life. And they'll always say something. I was talking to this guy on this plane. He's like, no, oh, that's such a great story, man, for people who like don't know God. It's so great that they can like come back to God and that they can find him. And I'm like, I totally agree with that. That is so good. Like people need to be able to recognize they can come back to God. But the thing is, it's not just for people that are lost. Like you got to realize he was a son before he squandered the money. So the thing is, you can know God and still find yourself in messy moments in life. And so I want to pick things up in Luke chapter 17, in, or actually rather Luke chapter 15, verse 17. It says this, 
But when the son came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I love this. The son realizes he's in a mess. He's, he's feeling the weight of guilt and shame and he does what a lot of us do. We start strategizing. How do I get out of this? And he's like, I'm gonna write a speech. I'm gonna write a speech and I'm gonna bring it to my dad and see what happens with that. And you continue in verse 20, it says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. You see, it's a very serious problem to lose the family inheritance. That would still be a big problem. But it was an even bigger problem for a young Jewish man to use that family inheritance and squander it in a foreign land. That was something that ended up completely cutting you off from the community. That was an action and an offense that involved you being completely left out of everything you once knew because you messed up too badly. And I want you to think about this with me. You know, the daddy's, he's probably got this great spot, right? He's got this, this place in the city and he's got this balcony that overlooks the city gates and he goes up there every morning. He's got his routine like we all got our routines. He makes a pot of coffee. He goes up there and he just thinks and he prays every day. But this morning is particularly different. He goes up to his balcony and he's looking out over the city gates and he's particularly overwhelmed with the thought of his son. He's just wondering like, like where is he? Is he alive? Is he even okay? I don't, I don't know. And he drops his coffee cup because he sees something that he's not used to seeing. He sees in the distance a figure is making his way towards him. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, I feel like I, I know that walk. I made that walk. That, that, I think that's my boy. I think that's my son. And he sees him coming more and more into view. And he's like, he's broken and he's dirty and he's beat up and he's cut up. But it's him. That's his hair. That's his, that's his face. And the son is making his way towards the city. And he's been reciting this speech that he wrote through tears over and over and over. And he's just ready to say, Father, just take me back. I won't even be your son. I'll be a servant. But he can't help but shake the feeling that he's not going to be welcomed back within the community because of the messiness that he has found himself in. But as he looks up through tears, he sees something that he should not see ever. He sees an older Jewish man has hiked up his robes and is sprinting out to meet his son and the father runs and embraces him and kisses him and the son starts doing what a lot of us know we should do. He starts to repent. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I'm hungry and I don't have a place to stay and I don't know what to do. I need you, dad. And the father says, get the best robe get shoes for his feet, get a ring for his hand. We're throwing the feasts of feast tonight. My son was lost and now he's come home. What is the character of our God that while you're still a long way off, he rejoices as he sees you coming back to him and he runs to meet you in your mess. 
You can prepare a speech or do whatever you want to as you bring your repentant self to God and say, Lord, will you ever accept me back? And just know your sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven if you are in Christ Jesus. God, what does he think about you? The same thing he thinks about his son because you are righteous in him. He sees you and he says, just like what he said to Jesus as Jesus came up out of the water, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Can I just tell somebody this morning that Jesus looks at you today and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. You know, I've, uh, I've heard so many times, um, even as a preacher, I just said it, you know. It's like God meets you in your mess. It's like, what does that mean? Is that just a cliche that we toss around as a result of like not talking about the things we need to talk about? Like, what does it mean if God is holy and pristine and perfect? What, what, what do you mean that that perfection meets this imperfection? What does that collision look like? And I started to get a little bit discouraged about it. And that thing that I could answer correctly with my head, I didn't necessarily believe with my heart, but then I, you know, I, I picked up this book and I started to read it and I was like, you know, when, when God made man in Genesis, it says he did so from the dust of the earth and that God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And then I started to read about Jesus in the gospels and, and I realized in the gospels that when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus lived anything but our idea of the perfect life. Like, yes, he lived a perfect, sinless life, but he didn't have the kingly comforts that you would expect a king to enjoy on this earth. He didn't rule from a palace. He was homeless. He didn't have women feeding him grapes and fanning his face with palm branches, but rather he had followers that were laying palm branches at his feet as he rode into Jerusalem one last time before his crucifixion. He didn't have a crown of jewels. He had a crown of thorns. He didn't sit on some ornate throne, but his throne was an old rugged cross. He didn't ask other people to spill their blood to protect his kingdom, but he rather spilled his own blood to bring you and I into his. God doesn't work around the messes in your life. He works in them. It is by dust that we came into being and it is by blood that we came into receiving everything that we could ever need in Jesus Christ. Life is messy. The gospel is messy, thank God. Your mess matters to God. It belongs to a king written by the author of life, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and God can use whatever you have gone through, are going through, or will go through for your good and for his glory, no matter how difficult or dark it may seem. You know, people ask me all the time, what's your book about? And I'm like, look at the title. Um, I don't have thoughts like that, I'm a pastor. Um, but I'm like, you know what, if I could sum up the book in one sentence, if I could sum up this message in one sentence, I would just say, Jesus has never been afraid of a mess and he's not about to start with yours. He's not about to start with yours. I wanna turn things over to Pastor David in Germantown and thank you guys, but you know, I just can't shake the feeling that a lot of us, we have heard a message like this many times in our life. 
and we still haven't grabbed hold of what it means. We still haven't allowed the blood of Jesus to really do in our heart what we believe it's done in our head. We don't live, we don't live free. We don't live with the power of knowing that we are completely forgiven that we're not labeled by the messes that we found ourselves in and we don't need to run away from anything that we found ourselves in, that God has a plan and a purpose for us and it's greater than anything that we've experienced. God actually is using the things that we hate the most about our lives in order to catapult us into everything that he has for our lives. I just want us to grab hold of it. As we move into a new year and into a new decade, would anybody agree that there's some things I gotta let go in my past in order to grab hold of what God wants to do in my future. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, thank you for, God, just who you are and what you're doing. We, we can't do this without you. God, thank you for picking up our broken pieces. Thank you for being who we can't be in our own story, God. We were helpless and we needed a hero and you sent one. God, I pray for every person that's in here this morning that they would actually know, believe, and understand that this is a new year. And I don't know if these people are, are people who believe in something powerful like that being something that can throw them into all the newness that you have for their life, but I believe there's something special about new years, new decades. God, you wanna do a new thing. Break the chains off the minds and the hearts of people from the messes that they found themselves in. Let them run in to the messes that they found themselves running from. Let them be people who understand that they are not labeled by what they've gone through. They do not define them, but you have refined them and you have brought them to a place where they are now able to go into all that you have for them despite what they've gone through. You have worked in it and you are ready to use it. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. Do what only you can do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.